imagine finding out that one of the things you are most passionate about is actually harming something you care even more about. But not willing to compromise, you decide instead to travel halfway across the world, to the heart of the conflict, to find solutions that are both healthy and delicious. You're listening to 2233, a podcast of Exchange Stories. This week, chasing down the weekly trash trucks, dancing one's problems away once and for all, and I promise you, you'll never hear Four Elise the same way again. Join us on a journey from California to Taiwan and preserving the planet, one milk tea refill at a time. It's 2233. We report what happens in the United States, warts and all. Exchanges shaped who I am. When you get to know these people, they're not quite like you. You read about them, they are people very much like ourselves. And oh, that's what we call cultural exchange. Ooh, yes. My name is Lily Gall or Lily Sedigan. My Chinese name is Sai Li Li. Um, which means like competitive flower flower. Uh, I am originally from San Diego, California, and I went to Taiwan on a Fulbright National Geographic Digital Storytelling Fellowship, where I went to study Taiwan's incredible waste management system and their plastics recycling initiatives, as well as the plastics supply chain. I joke that I come to Taiwan, I came to Taiwan because I really love Taiwanese milk tea. And that's a fact. Uh, I grew up in San Diego, California. There was a Taiwanese tea house right down the street from my father's apartment. I would go there regularly and became a VIP. Every time ordering a large ice milk tea with half sugar and no boba. Uh, no boba because each one of those balls I think is like 30 calories. And after a while I was like, I don't think I can do this. And I went there and pretty much grew up in that tea house. And... Wrote my first love letter there, uh, studied for my SATs there. And when I graduated from UC Berkeley, I came back to that tea house and sat in the same orange chair, facing the same window, ordered the same drink. And I asked myself that post-graduation quintessential question, which is, you know, what the hell am I going to do with my life? And as I reached for my milk tea, it was the first time that I actually saw the plastic cup it was in. And I saw the colorful plastic straw poking out from the top. And mind you, I'd had like probably thousands of milk teas up until that point when I would just drink it and chuck it away and drink it and chuck it away. That was the first time that I really thought about, oh my God, like every time that I'm drinking the drink that I love, I'm harming the environment that I love. And the trash that I was throwing away doesn't just disappear. It goes into a landfill, into an incinerator. It ends up in our marine ecosystems. And the ocean was just five minutes away from where I was. So it was this huge realization to have. And I was like, I need to do something. As a Fulbright Nat Geo storyteller, one of the most important things that you have to remember is the ethics of storytelling. So I was very cognizant of the fact that Taiwan is an island that's been colonized by four different groups of people. So I was very, very familiar knowing that I was a foreigner. The hardest part uh, every day about being in Taiwanese society and living there full time for nine months on my own 
And that means finding Airbnbs and apartments and going local grocery shopping, uh, opening bank accounts, which we'll get to in a little bit, was trying to prove to everyone that I was just another person of society. It's very easy if you speak English to kind of hang out with your English speaking friends and not necessarily understand the complexities of Taiwanese society, which is rooted in both Taiwanese and Mandarin. So I took Chinese classes every day to try and improve my Chinese terminology and to learn how to say not only my name, but what I was doing there. So, and then even the idea of saying I'm an environmental journalist was a little bit controversial. So then I was like, oh, so I threw in the, I'm a National Geographic environmental journalist in the hopes that that would be less partisan. But I think one of the most difficult things about being in that space was, again, trying to prove that I was just someone who wanted to listen and learn. And how do you do that when you have a camera, which is an invasive object, and you are a foreigner, which is technically an invasive person, uh, in, a, in a place that's people are familiar with each other, but they're not familiar with you. So I remember, you know, regularly going on the subway and having these old women stare at me. An old woman with her eyes really wide and have like a really grim look on her face as if she wanted to say something to me, but she was confused as to why I was there. And mind you, I have very dark eyelashes, very dark, thick eyebrows, very dark, thick hair. I don't really look either indigenous Taiwanese or Han Chinese. And I would always smile at them and go, ni hao, ni hao. And they'd be like, very confused. <laughs> like why I would do that. And I remember that in that moment of confusion and in using Mandarin in Taipei, for instance, that that was an opportunity for me to demonstrate that I'm trying to learn your language and I'm trying to understand who you are as a people, as a society, and and in your own generational narratives. But I remember that being very emotionally exhausting, is constantly trying to prove your humanity, but to demonstrate that I was doing it because this was a different time in world history, that here was a young Iranian-American uh, who loved boba tea, uh, Taiwanese zhenzhu nai cha, which is like the most amazing thing ever, coming to Taiwan to learn about waste management and plastic recycling because of that love and that interest. I grew up in San Diego, California, very multicultural place. My best friends were Japanese-American, Korean-American, Dutch-American, and white-American, and I was a Middle Eastern-American, but those terms never meant anything. We were just friends. And it wasn't until I went to Taiwan that I finally became aware of the fact that I looked different. And in that was this like intensity to want to demonstrate that we were more similar than we were different, but also to demonstrate to them that I wanted to share their stories because their stories were valuable and their stories were wonderful, and they were complex and rich with tension, and we could learn from them in the Western world. Wrapped up in that realization was this like fervent desire to try and understand the connectivity that an Iranian-American girl who loved milk tea in San Diego, California had to an island thousands of miles away across the Pacific. So I applied for a National Geographic storytelling grant through Full Art Program uh, in a very funny way. I was in the Bay Area working for a nonprofit organization. It was my first real job out of college, so you know I really wanted to do really, really well. And I didn't. <laughs> I really didn't. And I got an email at the end of one day where my boss pretty much told me in the way emails do that you suck at life. Like, you just really, 
really suck and you're making a lot of terrible mistakes. Uh, and I remember coming home that day, uh, crossing the band, the, the BART, thinking to myself, man, do I, do I suck this much? I was really discouraged. And on my way back in the, the jostling noises of the BART, I was thinking to myself and I was like, is there nothing that I'm good at? I remember my parents, but my mom and my dad, used to read me stories to bed every night. And I grew up reading these fantasy novels about these like, kick-ass women who would like go into battle riding on the backs of polar bears and like saving their kingdom. And I was really, really, I love those things. And I said, well, I really like stories. And so I stopped in the library on the way home and typed Storytelling Fellowship into Google. And the Fulbright National Geographic Storytelling Fellowship was the first thing that popped up. And in that moment, I was like, all right. It's it. It's over. I'm quitting my job. I'm applying for this. So I asked my parents to support me for a month. I quit my job and I spent the month working on that application. Next thing you know, six months later, I say, bye, mom. Bye, dad. Bye, Lara, who's my sister. And went over to Taiwan with three pieces of black luggage and a backpack and a camera. I'm pulled up in a, a hostel Green World Hostel, and it's located in Ximen, which is like the super popular, like bustling neighborhood for like youth and like urban culture and like video games and like anime and milk tea and like lots of lights. And I, I dropped off my luggage and I pulled out my camera and was like, let's go. And the first thing I did is I got a milk tea. I was in Taiwan, which is the kingdom of milk teas. It's like where it originated. Got one of those and then realized after I'd gotten one of those that it was in a plastic cup and I had to use plastic straw and I was like, this is not a great way to start my environmentalism research. I determined that the first thing I was gonna learn how to say was, uh, can you please put my milk tea in my reusable cup? And I, uh, the first time I did that, I was so nervous. I was sweating under my armpits and it was actually a Fulbright water bottle. It was the one that I received in my orientation. It was big, it was blue, and I was foreign, and I was bringing a foreign object, and I didn't know, it was, I was like, I gotta do this. And when I told my friends that it worked out, and they were like, yeah, no problem. And they even gave me a discount for it. I got like three NT dollars off. My friends were like, are you serious? I was like, yeah, living that environmental life. They're like, they did it for you, and they gave you a discount? I was like, yeah. So I proved to them, and the next day I went to another milk tea shop, because they are like, hundreds of small milk tea shops, like like everywhere, everywhere you go. And I did the same thing. My Taiwanese friends also were like, yeah, we heard about it, but we've never done it before. You did it? I was like, yeah, of course. The things that I dealt with were waste management, plastic recycling, and of course, environmentalism in terms of sustainability. So I went in there with really no leads. Uh, aside from knowing from the Wall Street Journal that they had considered one of the world's genius of garbage disposal. So on the second day that I was there, I took the train uh, to Taipei City Hall, walked straight into the public building, looked at the directory, saw that the Environmental Protection Department was on the seventh floor, walked straight into their offices, and I was like, hello, like in the middle of this office, everyone was talking like, what? Like, hi, I'm Lily Sedigan, I'm from America. I was saying in Chinese, I'm here to study your waste management system. Can anybody help me? I was literally like a ping pong, like nyeon, 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 going to like all these different desks. And finally I sat down with this woman who was the secretary of um, one of Taipei City's commissioners for waste. And she was like, yes, just email us your questions and we'll get back to you. In 
And several weeks later, I was in a cafe and I got a phone call. Like, is this like Miss Lily? And I was like, yeah. And I was like, okay, great. 100% comprehension at this point. This is awesome. Uh, I had picked up pieces that he was like, we want to invite you to um, an international conference on food waste management. I didn't understand most of what was said, but I got that. I was like, great. Yeah, like count me in. Can you please email me so I can like do a Google Translate if I need to and sign up? And uh, so he emails me and I show up at the super fancy hotel like the next day where I met the commissioner and she was the one who connected me on a tour of the incinerator for Taipei. In the public waste stream, the way it works is in Taipei City, you have to pay for your weight in garbage. So or you have to go to a 7-Eleven or a grocery store and you have to pay for government-mandated trash bags. And the idea is for everything that you have to throw away that's not recyclable or compost, you have to pay for it. So you kind of like have a financial incentive to minimize your waste. They also have like 13 categories and 33 different subcategories of recyclables that are picked up on different days, and then compost, which is separated into wet waste and dry waste that goes towards uh, fertiliz fertilizer and pig farms and feed for pigs. Pork is a really big industry there. You have to separate this all within your home, and then in Taipei, every night, you hear this song. Da-na-na-na, na-na-na-na, na-na-na-na. And as soon as you hear that song, you grab all of your trash bags and you rush down to the corner, the neighborhood corner that you have, because that's when all the trash trucks come. And it's like the America's version of the ice cream truck song, but for trash. It's amazing. And depending upon what city you go, they have their own little style. Sometimes it's for Elise. So, so everyone's either at the corner, like ready to go, or like someone like me who's like, oh, oh man, go, go. Like I was like, oh, I'm so excited, I'm so excited, look at my bags. And I like take my bags down like 12 flights of stairs, because I'm on the 12th floor, uh, and then rush out to this corner. And they have yellow trash trucks where you dump uh, your waste, which is in the government mandated blue bags. You throw it in there and they crush it. And then behind them is a white truck for recycling. So like on like Mondays, I think Mondays and Wednesdays, where they recycle the PET plastic bottles. So I'd hand it to them. Uh, and I'd always like be really excited and really smiling. And because I was usually the only foreigner who lived in this neighborhood, they're like, hey, how's it going? And I was like, I'm so excited to throw my trash today. And they're like, yeah. Great. Uh, there was even one time I asked the uh, one of the guys who was operating one of these trucks, like, can you please play, press the button for the trash song truck? Like, please, just one time. I really like it. And he's like, oh, okay. And so he pushes the button and the song goes off. And I was like, yeah, this is so cool. I think I'm the only one who gets excited over trash. <laughs> like unique system and it was a system that was designed by a group of housewives actually. Taiwan in 1987 transitioned from four decades of martial law where they weren't allowed to uh, there was no political freedom of speech or association or petitioning and there were curfews. Um, well it transitioned into a democracy in the late 1980s and in that transition there were a group of housewives who were kind of sick and tired of their kids like walking through trash to get to school and like pollution coming into their homes. They got together and they started this group called the Homemakers United Foundation or HUF. 
and they were the ones who were the architects of the system I just described to you. The song choice, they say, was the EPA minister at the time was grappling with this idea of doing trash pickups at these designated locations, and he had come home to uh, his child playing for Elise on the piano. And he was like, all right, that's it. That's the Trash Chuck song. Legend has it, urban legend has it, which is really, really cool. For me, I said going back to the idea of what is truth, what can you and can you not see was really important to me because I realized that I had a responsibility as a storyteller, both ethically, but also as an American. Um, and as someone who had two big brands on her shoulders, I had the Fulbright brand and I had the National Geographic brand that I knew whatever I would produce needed to be thoroughly researched, authentic to those people's narratives. And so I was constantly thinking, what am I not seeing? What have I not heard? Because up until that point, like the government was very nice in, in terms of introducing me to literally follow their trash trucks and to go to the incinerator. I did a tour of it. I saw the vault where things burned. I saw that they also had like a trash mountain they had transformed into a park. They had an animal rescue center on that park. They had like a, a composting facility where people can come and get free liquid nitrogen. They even had like a, a public pool with hot water that they'd use to heat from the process of burning. They would reuse it into heating that pool. And then like tennis facilities and basketball courts and playgrounds for kids because in a sense they, they were trying to show that they were trying to make amends for the public who had to live nearby because the smell was just horrendous. And I learned that if any material, so for instance, night markets in Taiwan are super popular. Every night there's a market and you can get food and these are like lots of hot liquids and like fried foods and they put them in these plastic bags so you can like walk, hang out with your friends and then go from vendor to vendor. Well, those plastic baggies that are now tainted with soups and like oils and stuff cannot be recycled because they're tainted from food residuals. So the people at the incinerator would tell me like the biggest problem they have is even though they've been able to minimize the amount of waste that's generated on the island, they can't recycle those things and they have to be burned. And the residual, which is burned to a tenth of the size, is this black sludge they're trying to reuse in like construction materials. But it's like a lot of environmental concerns surrounding that because it's, well, you either have to landfill it and it seeps into groundwater, which is very toxic for people who are trying to drink natural water. That was the realization that I had that you can't recycle plastics that have any sort of food residuals. And coming back to America, like we love yogurt, we love Starbucks. Like those are things that we do. And we think that when we finish drinking or drinking our Starbucks or eating our yogurt, we can just chuck it in the recycling bin and then the, there's a faith that that'll be recycled. Well, it's not. I met with three plastics engineers who essentially gave me a tour of their facility. You know, I asked them, well, I've seen all these incredible government facilities in the public waste streams. Um, but I want to know, do you guys believe that Taiwan is doing a good job? And I asked them, what am I not seeing? Because on the way there, I had met a taxi cab driver 
who, when I introduced myself and when I was researching, he was like, Taiwan is such a dirty place. Like the government's deceiving you and telling you that we're doing a great job because we're not. And he was very angry, very like passionate about his opinion. And I was like, am I missing something? I remember asking him like, well, what do you guys think? Like, you're the ones creating these products. And he said, well, first, a lot of people have no idea the health effects and the true effects of plastic on their bodies and the environment. But two, you know, while we do believe that the government system now is a lot better than it was 15 years ago, there's still a lot of anger that exists. So I said, well, then what is the truth? And I remember one guy who was sitting across from me, his, his arms were folded across his chest, it must have been like late 30s. He looked at me and said, well, you're the truth because you're part of National Geographic and we'll believe you. Whatever you write will believe you. People don't believe our government. People don't know if it's true or false. But whatever you produce will believe you. And that was like one of the most outstanding realizations that I'd had. And Due to the seriousness of the issue of what I was doing, I wasn't just there for a study abroad program or was there to drink milk tea. I was there to research and I was there to share these narratives with not only the people around the world, but the people on the island who had had a very complicated historical relationship with their government. So it was a huge responsibility and one that I took very, very seriously. And there were days when I made a lot of mistakes. My Chinese wasn't fluent, but I was trying really hard to pretend like I was fluent to show them that I was really trying to meet them halfway. I remember I had a chance to interview the environmental protection minister, the EPA minister, and I thought it was a one-on-one -on -one interview. And it was my first real interview with somebody like very, you know, very high level in this thing. And I thought, you know, he spoke English, like I'll probably use English. Well, he invited me into his office in the headquarters and there were six other people there who I came to find out were his top waste management staff members in the bureau. And I was like, oh man, like what did I just get into? And I had my camera, it was a Fujifilm TX, like around my neck and I didn't want to be obvious and like put it in his face while we were talking. I still was very new to this whole interviewing thing. So I kind of like, I was sitting on the couch and he was sitting on the table, kind of put it on the couch, like, like where you rest your hand and kind of tilted it up a little bit. So I was trying to like not be obvious about it. He was talking to me and we had half an hour and he was using both English and Chinese. And I was trying to use just Chinese. And I remember him asking me a question in Chinese. and I had no idea what he had said. And everyone was waiting for me. And then I, what I thought he said was, oh, like, why did you come to Taiwan and do this work? So I launched into the story of what I thought he asked me. And halfway through telling the story in my broken Chinese, I turn around and I see that the people around me, I clearly made a mistake. Like, you know, and they were being very polite about it because I was trying. But I remember feeling just so thoroughly embarrassed that I had just embarrassed myself in front of the EPA minister and his like top level officials. And when I reviewed the footage afterwards, when I thought that I was getting some good footage, well, lo and behold, the place where you rest your arm, like got his chest and only his chest and like maybe his knees. So I got no footage of him. And then the footage stopped after seven and a half minutes and I was in his office for an hour and a half.
And I remember like walking out and there, it was kind of like a, yeah, good job, like they're there. And I was like, I just embarrassed myself. It was starting to rain. I was like, well, this is appropriate. What I would do at the end of each day when I was in Taiwan was I'd go to Guofu Guan, which is the Sun Yat-sen Memorial, which is a very popular practice spot among young people who are trying to practice house dancing and break dancing and hip hop dancing. A lot of high schoolers come there after school to practice. Taiwan's got an incredibly vibrant hip hop community. Like, oh my goodness, it's amazing. And I remember I went there and I forgot my speakers, of course, and I forgot my actual practice shoes, but I just needed to like be outside, like wallow in my shame and just dance out all the ickiness that I felt. Uh, it's always so popular there at nighttime, like from 7 p.m. until 11 o'clock and even afterwards. You have like groups of older women who are dancing and then there are like young people playing like American hip hop, like yeah, yeah, yeah. And like old school hip hop, like 90s hip hop. Some are like listening to like classical Taiwanese music, doing like ballroom dancing. It's just like a melody and mix of all these people like literally within feet of each other. So there's like 30 different speakers blaring music surrounding this pavilion. I just wanted to like be by myself and like shake my head and like move around. But I had forgotten my speakers. So I like walked around till I heard songs that I liked the most. And then I went up to that group of guys. They were young, young men must've been in their like late teens, early twenties. I was like, hey, can I just, can I just like listen to your music and dance in Chinese? They're like, yeah, yeah, sure. It's like, yeah, I'm just gonna stand here. And let me just, I just wanna, just want this corner to myself. Like, but I just, I just wanna listen to your music. Yeah, yeah, no problem. I've done hip hop dance, I've done Persian dance, I'm a B-girl, but I, that day I just wanted to like be by myself and just wiggle out as it was raining. So I started moving, it was like heavy bass, you know, and like just shaking around and everything. And my eyes were glued to the floor because I was like, please nobody look at me, please no one engage in me. I just feel really terrible about myself, just please, just let me dance. And one of the guys comes over and is like, hey, you wanna dance with us? I'm like, thank you so much, I'm, I'm okay. And then the next song turns on, and then within like moments, the entire group, just seven or eight guys, they come towards me and they circle around me. So I'm in the center of the circle and they're like shaking their hands and like moving their feet to the music and they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though I wanted to be by myself in that moment, I realized that that was like one of those things that fate does to you where like when you feel really bad about yourself, it's other people who can help you get out of that. And these, these people who didn't know who I was, who I just met five minutes ago, had saw that I had like a dark rain cloud, like darker than what was raining outside surrounding me. And they just wanted to dance. They just wanted to exchange. And like, they just wanted to bug out and have a good time to like hip hop music. And so we did that. Two hours afterwards, we were walking to the train station together to get home before it closed. And I was, I felt so like, like a cathartic moment. Like here was these random people who I'd never seen in my life, who had never even know. And it wasn't like one of those weird things like, oh, you're a foreigner, we're Taiwanese. Like the, what I explained in the beginning of this, it was just like, you're cool, we're cool. Let's just dance and bug out and have a good time. And I was so elated and just so thankful that after struggling by myself for so long, like sounding like an idiot in Chinese, making a fool out of myself in front of some big people, grappling with these questions of like truth and identity and like foreignness and trying to improve my common humanity. 
that this these group of kids, these these young men, would just come and do something like that and make me feel included. And that's all I needed was someone to show me that they cared. And I didn't realize that's what I needed until I, I walked away from that experience and I I cried. And I was like, this is the power of being human. This is the power of making connections. This is the power of dancing and hip hop and just being with other people at the right place at the right time. And I felt like I had finally built a life in a place thousands of miles away from home. And over the course of nine months, I put out maybe like 12 different stories in addition to a YouTube video series and a series of Instagram stories and photos and maps that I had done, infographics I had made. A music video I made out of Taipei City's trash sounds. So the, the song itself was, I collected sounds from Taipei City's waste management system. Also me like crushing plastic bottles and like drinking out of like the juice cartons. And my friend Francis Tongpalat, he's a aspiring producer from the Bay Area. He took those sounds and he made the track almost 100% out of these trash sounds. And you would think it's like, it's not. It's the silkiest, smoothest, like jazz hip hop track you've ever heard in your life. one of those projects in themselves tells a sliver of the story. That's why I want to go back and learn more. You know, if I don't make environmentalism a norm for myself, if I can't convince myself, how on earth could I convince other people? It's a lifestyle choice. People have to be willing to make a change. People have to be willing to think about where their trash goes and why it matters to them and how their everyday decisions as a consumer or an individual or a policymaker or an industry leader can make a difference. You just have to have the energy to put behind that. And that's what I'm trying to do with my work is to like reshape trash, make it interesting, make it cool. Can you hear it? Can you see it? Can you smell it? To get Americans to think that it's not just like buying things that makes you cool. Or it's not like you, have, you don't have any time in your life to actually do something meaningful outside of yourself. It's like, no, like, Every single decision that you make has an impact on someone, somewhere, or something. Everything. And there's no right answer. People need to realize that there are things that they can do. Right? You can use your own bag. You can use your own utensils. You can use your own cup. It takes a little bit of courage, a little resilience to do something different, but you can do that. And if you're sick and tired of not having any plastic-free options in your neighborhood, write to your city councilor. Write to your congresswoman. Write to your assembly member. Ask them to focus on this. Because only if we have the energy and drive within our policymakers, within our community members, that people can feel like they can do something, they have the power to do something, and then the result of that, something will happen. But it takes a lot of people to realize that they, they have not only the energy, but the capability to be able to do that. And I think this country allows us to be able to do that. So we should. I'm so thankful 
so thankful for the opportunity and the experience. And for all the people that I met there, from the matcha green tea baristas who became really good friends of mine because I went there almost every day to do my work, to the Mandarin Chinese teachers that I had who taught me all the environmental protection vocabulary, who realized that we have a lot more in common than we do, than she thought we did. There are cultural concepts like filial piety and Confucian cultures that are also reflected in Persian cultures. The moments where I felt like I was completely alone and I was making a fool out of myself. But every time I felt like that, there was some, even if it was just some random Taiwanese person who was like, no, you're cool, you're fine. You know, shared some shaved ice under the hot sun. Cut, had uh, an old woman who became a friend of mine who would cut uh, watermelon cubes for me, sitting under the, the Tainan sun in a pink plastic chair and sharing cut, cut fruit with this lady or this older woman who recycles for a living and she let me follow her on my bike as she biked around town picking up recyclables and uh, using it to feed into a machine that gave her store credit that she could go to like a Costco equivalent and provide for her and her mother. But she let me into her home and we shared food together. Going abroad is one of the most amazing and scariest things you could ever do. Because in America, if you grow up here, you're familiar with the cultural nuances, you're familiar with the language, you kind of take those things for granted. Until you're thrust in a completely different realm, where your literacy becomes illiteracy, where your articulate-ness becomes inarticulate, where your intelligence becomes moot, and all you can rely on is sign language and picking up pieces of of, of local dialects and you try to build a life there and try to prove that you're just somebody else trying to learn and listen from other people. And I think that goes a long way. And what I learned from my experience is the world is much bigger than me. I'm just one person in it. Thirty-three is produced by The Collaboratory, an initiative within the U.S. State Department's Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs, better known as ECA. My name's Christopher Wurst. I'm the director of The Collaboratory. 2233 is named for Title 22, Chapter 33 of the U.S. Code, the statute that created ECA. And our stories come from participants of U.S. government-funded international exchange programs. This week, Lily Gol Sedegat shared stories from her time as a Fulbright National Geographic Fellow, studying waste management practices in Taiwan. For more about Fulbright and other ECA exchange programs, check out eca.state.gov. We encourage you to subscribe to 2233. You can do that wherever you find your podcasts and leave us a nice review while you're at it. We'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at ecacollaboratory at state.gov. That's E-C-A-C-O-L-L-A-B-O-R-A-T-O-R-Y at state.gov. And just so you know, photos of each week's interviewee and complete episode transcripts can be found at our webpage at eca.state.gov slash 2233. Very special thanks this week to Lily Gall for her stories and her passion to make this world a better place. My colleague Ana Maria Sanitin and I did the interview. I edited it. 
Featured music was Filing Away by Blue Dot Sessions, Sunspots Tight and Floating by Poddington Bear, For Release, which totally gets my vote as the best trash truck tune ever, and Dan Shuey, the song created out of Lily Gall's recycling sounds by her friend and DJ Francis Tongpalad. Thank you so much for letting us share that. Music at the top of each episode is Sebastian by How the Night Came, and the end credit music is Two Pianos by Tagir Lius. Until next time. <laughs>